So, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, um, no, 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 it's all good. I'm going to take this for a spin, yeah. And then when this arm gets tired, I'll just move to the other one, like this. <laughs> Everything's fine. This morning, as I mentioned, I actually was uh, with Forest Brook this morning, and uh, it was so great to be speaking to their church. They uh, gave me a topic that I was really passionate about, and so I can tell you that this morning, uh, my kids actually watched from home, and afterwards I said, Dad, it was, really, it was like a TED Talk. It was amazing. Um, and so, you know, actually, they probably got the best version of me, so I'm really sorry. You know, like they asked me to, to preach on a really great uh, topic, and uh, tonight I got handed Joel. Okay, the, 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 the prophet Joel. Some of you are like, what, is that even a book in the Bible? Yes, yes, it is. It's actually, it's amazing. It's three chapters. That's it, 73 verses. Right, so um, it's, a, it's a minor prophet, and we've already a couple of weeks have looked at uh, you know, what the difference between a minor, minor and a major prophet is. But this, it's one of the mi minor prophets. And you know, uh, most of these minor prophets, they have kind of a memorable trait, something that you can hang on to. Like last week, uh, uh, Lucy preached uh, from Hosea. Outstanding. I, if, you, if you missed last week, I want to encourage you, Download that sermon. Go check it out on YouTube. She did a great job. But you know, Hosea's trademark is obviously prophet marries prostitute. That's kind of the, the thing that you get out of Hosea. And it's the same. You, you go to Malachi, for example. We haven't preached it yet, but when you go to Malachi, it's kind of like a Q&A session. You know, Malachi throws a question out, and then he gives an answer, or the Lord gives an answer. And if you, uh, you know, look ahead a little bit at Jonah, Jonah's coming as well. Some of you might be familiar with sort of trademarks of the Jonah story. You know, you know, there's a rebellious prophet in the belly of a fish. Okay, so every prof, minor prophet generally has this thing that you can go, oh yeah, that's what that book's all about. Now Joel, sadly to say, is all about sort of apocalyptic, like, you know, killing locusts, right? It's, like, it's great to actually make maybe an end times movie about, you know, about locusts swarming in and just destroying everything. So this title of tonight's sermon is The Attack of the Killer Locusts. No, it's actually still just Joel. Don't worry about it. But that is kind of, that's how Joel kicks off. That's, how, that's, that's so much of his content actually uses this metaphor. But before we get into that, um, the placement of Joel is probably... Uh, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, so it's 500 BC, and so the exiles are now coming back, you know, temples being rebuilt, and that's kind of where a lot of people think Joel is placed. He doesn't give us a lot to work with, and so although they say that's probably where it is, nobody's really sure in terms of where Joel uh, is placed in terms of the, um, the time frame. You see in chapter 3, he does refer to the exile as a past event, so that's kind of the clues that people get. Uh, also, there's no king mentioned. So last week as well, you look through judges, you know, lots of kings and the mess ups they'd made. But when they came back out of exile, there weren't any kings. And, uh, and also the temple is spoken of in a positive light. And I know I preached through Jeremiah a while ago and a temple there and how they used it was in a very negative light. So that's kind of why people are saying probably around 500 B.C. Uh, the book of Joel opens up by telling us you know, his name and his daddy's name. So we know he's the son of Pethuel, as you'll see in uh, chapter 1. And the name of Joel means Yahweh is God. So again, it's that classic you know, mic drop moment for a prophet who's saying, I know there's all these other idols with cute little names and you make them out of wood and straw and, and steel and so on, but Yahweh 
the Lord God of Israel, the one true God. He is God. And that's what the word Joel means. So in many ways, I could basically just say Joel, describe his name, and we can all go home. Because it's, it's a powerful statement. Yahweh is God. There is no other God beside him. He's a classic prophet. You know, classic prophets do this. They give you the bad news. God's judgment's coming. And then they give you the good news that deliverance is also awaiting. So, you know, his book kind of rolls the same way. And the interesting thing about Joel is that he doesn't really mention a specific sin. So often when we've gone through these, these, these prophets and these books, you know, when Israel is confronted, you know, whether it's the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah, you know, they're called out for very specific things that they do. Uh, whether it's neglecting injustice or... Uh, or, ju- or the injustice, neglecting justice, or idolatry, you know, chasing after other gods. It's often mentioned specifically, but in the case of Joel, he's actually just talking about kind of sin in general. Sort of, that's, that's, uh, that's how he rolls. So I am going to put the Bible Project image up on the screen, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not Tim Mackey, and so, you know, and it's pretty small as well, so most of you cannot read this, so I can basically make up anything, and you probably would believe me. <laughs> But, you know, it kind of just shows you how the book of Joel is broken up. So, you know, there's kind of four main sections. The first section here, he does refer to these locusts. We'll look at that in a moment. And they believe that it's probably an event that did take place uh, in his time, the, the locusts. Um, and, uh, and so he's using that idea of locusts coming in and stripping the land. I don't know if you've ever seen that taking place. It's, it's quite amazing. And he kind of talks about, you know, wave after wave. If you look uh, at the book of Joel, you know, he, he describes them. I mean, I should probably have my Bible on me, but uh, I'm sorry, I don't have. I have some of the scriptures printed out over here. But, you know, he's, he describes the first wave of locusts. He gives them a name. Um, I'm just going to call them locust number one, you know. <laughs> and they do a certain amount of damage. And then he says, but as soon as they finished, a second wave of locusts come in and they do a bit more damage. And then when they're done, the third wave comes in and the fourth wave, I think there's four kinds of locusts that he just moves in and actually the land is laid bare. And so he, he maybe, you know, scholars believe that there was this kind of plague that came, uh, came its way. And he's piggybacking off of this thing that probably happened in their time, these locusts swarming in, and he's using that as a metaphor, as a prophetic picture for what will happen if they continue in their sin. Now, this is a classic prophet move, okay? You know, I, um, I was in South Africa a few weeks ago, as I said, and we visited one church in particular who's building a building in this valley in Johannesburg, and it's like 100 meters away from the river uh, mouth. They call it the daylight point. It's actually where the water pops out of the ground. It's like the, um, what do they call it? It's the, you know, the source of a particular river. The, river, the spring, the head. And, uh, and it's amazing, you know, the, but he says every prophetic auntie in the church, you know, with a, they're all rushing forward with every prophetic word of new streams of living waters flowing out and pictures just of the land being watered by this, because that's kind of what it does. We know what it's like, you know, today it rained, hey, and I'm pretty sure some of you are sitting here going, oh, I really have a sense that, you know, the reign of the Lord's presence, you know. <laughs> Is coming. I don't know what it is, but sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to piggyback off like an actual event and to sort of bring the word of the Lord in. Joel's a classic prophet, all right? Locusts come in. He's like, ah, yeah, you see these locusts? That's what's going to happen to y'all. Okay. So, but he is obviously borrowing a little bit from the Exodus. 
We know that in the Exodus, locusts were one of the plagues that God threw upon a foreign nation. But the crazy thing over here is that although everybody can kind of identify it, both what happened in the Exodus when Egypt was judged, but perhaps in the natural as they see their lands ravaged by locusts, the, the, the scary thing is Joel is not speaking to a foreign enemy. He's speaking to the people of God. And so, you know, it, it, it needs to make them kind of shudder and worry a little bit because this judgment is coming upon them. And so this judgment language um, is used uh, by Jesus a bit. Uh, but before we get into that, let me just finish up. So there's the locusts, all right? And he's saying this actually points to a future day of the Lord, all right, where some judgment is coming. And he is actually kind of describing it as if, armies would come in. And again, they've just come out of exile. So there should be a little bit of muscle memory. As the, as, as the picture he's using of these locusts, he eventually turns into soldiers and, and men, actually, like an army of the Lord that is sent for judgment. So, so the picture of locusts swarming in is becoming very vivid as they start to think about these locusts actually being like an army coming to ravage us and to judge if we continue in sin. And I'm pretty sure, again, uh, you know, they see what locusts do to their, their actual crops and stuff, but they might remember, we've just come out of exile. We know what it is for an army to come in and actually the judgment of God to come upon us through that. So I'm pretty sure they are shuddering a little bit and there's a lot of repenting. All right, these bottom blocks over here is actually uh, uh, um, Joel saying to every, everybody, the leaders, the elders, um, you know, repent. And he himself is crying out to the Lord, have mercy on us. And then it moves from this picture of, you know, locusts that he's seen to maybe a future army. And, and again, he's saying we need to repent. And then he gives the basis for repentance, which is the gracious for mercy of the Lord that actually when repentance comes in. So the army hasn't come in yet. He's just warning of judgment, but he's then moving and he's shifting to saying, this is amazing that actually if you admit that you sin, and if you repent, and if you turn, we'll talk about that turning in a moment, God will forgive. And that's the amazing thing about Joel. He actually, from all, all the minor prophets, he majors more on the mercy of God than perhaps many other of the prophets do. He says God's gracious, God's merciful, he's, forgive, he's forgiving. And then he moves forward. So there's this potential imminent danger of, of them you know, experiencing judgment soon. But then Joel just casts ahead again, as with a lot of these prophets do is that he moves into the day of the Lord, judgment day ultimately. Okay, and then God starts to speak a little bit in the book of Joel as well. And he promises that actually he will judge the nations. And, 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 if, and if, if people repent, there would be forgiveness. And there's a promise of a new Eden in there. There's a promise of, of God's people being filled with the Spirit. We'll look at all of those things. But anyway, you can check out this graphic yourself. And of course, you can go to the Bible Project. These guys do a great job of often summarizing these books. Okay, so we, don't, we won't have that uh, up on the screen anymore. We can just leave it on the one slide. And let me continue with my notes in front of me. So the judgment language that you find here in the book of Joel, Jesus actually uses some of his imagery and his, his words as well when he talks about his return, his second coming. That's what we as Christians believe, by the way. Believe that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we believe Jesus is coming again because the Old Testament promises that Jesus would come first, and he did. 2,000 years ago, historically, it's a fact Jesus Christ came God kept his promise. And so when Jesus said, I'm coming back again, we believe it's coming. And Joel is looking ahead to this day of the Lord that's coming. And Jesus, when he talks about his return again, after his death 
ascension into heaven, he's, upon his return, he uses the language that you find here in the book of Joel, the day of the Lord. You can find that in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13. That's where Jesus speaks of it, and he quotes some of what Joel is saying. You know, some of you know that a, a, a bunch of city gators are reading, you know, the Bible together most days. It's called seeing Jesus together. We get a little outline of what to read. And this last couple of weeks, we've been in the book of Revelation. Man, what a trip. <laughs> you know, just like a chapter a day, having to wrestle with that imagery, classic prophet as well. But it's all about the end. It's all about what is coming, the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord coming to judge. It's going to happen. The end is coming. And in Joel chapter 3, where it speaks about this day of the Lord in the future, it talks about the valley of Jehoshaphat. And the word Jehoshaphat actually means the Lord has judged. This valley of Jehoshaphat is coming for all the nations. So yes, he's speaking to Israel is warning them, but then he zooms out and he looks ahead and he's saying all nations actually will one day be judged. This is what we believe as Christians, that there will be a reckoning day. There will be a judgment day. That if we live in such a way thinking it'll never happen to us, it'll never happen at all, we are believing a lie that actually judgment is coming. And the other word that Joel uses for this valley of Jehoshaphat is the valley of decision. Joel chapter 3 verse 14 says this, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. There's going to come a day where the nations will be in the valley of decision, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, where the Lord will judge. Multitudes upon multitudes will face judgment, where the Lord will decide. This is the valley of decision. That is coming. But let me give you a little bit of good news, friends, is that Right now, there's a decision before everyone still. Every human being that's alive today actually has the opportunity to choose life, as Moses said, to choose life and not death. That actually there's an opportunity to make a decision now to believe the gospel, to take what Jesus offers them, to escape that judgment day. Now the choice can be made because one day when we stand before the Lord and the opportunity is gone, the Lord will make the choice and he's a just God. And if you rejected what he offers you right now, you will face judgment. And so yes, there's this valley of decision, this day of the Lord that's gonna come, but actually there's also this day. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Today is a day where you could choose and you could trust in the Lord. Because Joel shows us that God actually responds graciously to repentance. Although he says there is this judgment day coming, there's this gear shift in chapter 3, or act chapter 2 actually, halfway through chapter 2, where things change, the tone changes. Let me read to you um, chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. Verse 12 says, Yet even now, again, there's that urgency that the Lord is saying, Yet even now declares the Lord, so yes, there's a judgment day coming, but the Lord is saying right now, look at what's before you. Look at what is on offer. He says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Verse 13 says, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, 
For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. It's amazing here, Joel, and actually the Lord, this is the Lord speaking, he quotes Exodus 34 verse 6. The slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting over disaster. We find that in Joel chapter 2. Joel is actually very familiar with other portions of Scripture. He quotes quite a bit from other prophets. And so he's assuming that his readers, his listeners, are familiar with the Scriptures as he is. And so he quotes Exodus 34, where God declares who he is, his nature, that he's gracious and forgiving. So yes, judgment is coming. But if we repent... And genuine repentance. That's why he's saying, rend your hearts and not your garments. I talked about that in Jeremiah, that there is a fake repentance we can do. We can be sorry, but it, can't be, it might not be godly sorrow. We might be sorry. Maybe the Israelites could be sorry about the fact that their crops are destroyed by the locusts, but not really be sorry because the, the heart of God is destroyed because of their rebellion. They might be upset because, you know, the stalks are broken. Is that what it is, a stork? Yeah. For a moment there, I saw a bird, but I believe it's a double meaning. <laughs> yeah, I know. But in South Africa, we say, stork is a stork is a stork. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that you might be sad. They might be sad because the storks are broken, but actually, genuine repentance is sad because God's heart's broken. Genuine repentance. He's saying, if you rend your hearts, not your garments, not external re repentance, like fake repentance, Actually, the Lord is gracious and merciful. If you turn, godly sorrow will result in God's mercy and forgiveness. And for those of us who've experienced God's mercy and forgiveness in Christ, we've sung about that so beautifully this evening with the songs that the band chose. We tasted of His mercy. That day that Joel talks about, that judgment day, will, will be a day of deliverance for those who have made Jesus their Lord and Savior. That day will be a day of deliverance for Jesus' followers, but it will be a day of judgment for the rest. Why would it be a day of deliverance for us? Because on the cross, Jesus took the judgment. Judgment fell upon him so that on that day, judgment wouldn't fall upon us. What is that word you used in that hymn? interposation took place. I made that one up. That's, that's the reason why believers on that day would stand free from judgment because of Jesus interposing. Standing in between me and the wrath of God and it fell upon him on the cross. It's incredible. I mean, as we were reading through Revelation, you know, it says books are going to be opened. People are going to be held account for their deeds. And you know, the Bible does talk about when we are forgiven by God in Christ, it's like He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west and He remembers them no more. But you know what? Even if that wasn't in the Scriptures and if the books are open and actually our wrongdoings are read out loud and we are held accountable for our actions, the Bible tells us that those wrong actions that He would read out was upon Jesus on the cross and we would not bear the judgment for it. That's how good the gospel is, that's, that's how far Jesus went for you and me. And you know, Peter, when he preached at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, it's amazing. He explains there that what Joel is speaking about, the day of the Lord, that he prophesied about, 
Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 2. And he says, that day has already taken place for believers. And in that moment, in Acts chapter 2, 2,000 years ago, he declared that the day of the Lord happened and will not happen at the end of history, but for those who follow Jesus, it happened in the middle of history. It happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. Because for those in Christ, the end time judgment has been carried out already on Jesus. Goodness, what a relief. And that's why, you know, it's, I mean, it's bad news when we tell the world, you will face certain judgment, but there's a way out because there's a gracious and merciful God that if you rend your hearts, he's not interested in your garments, he's not interested in outward behavior, but a genuine contrite heart, a genuine heart that is broken when they, we sin because we know God's heart's broken. That forgiveness is a guarantee for us because judgment was upon Christ. Isn't that amazing? And you know, Joel carries on by including another uh, incredible prophecy. You know, Joel contains one of the most amazing prophecies about the Holy Spirit being poured out. That's also in chapter 2. And this is what Peter referenced when he preached in chapter 2. He quoted from Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. Let me read it for you. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. That's an incredible promise. Because remember, this is now God's dealings with Jerusalem. God's, de well, God's dealing, dealings with Israel. And here's this promise that actually on all flesh, non-Israelites, the whole world, pretty much everybody in this room, that actually God will come that close. He'll come that near. And it's amazing. I mean, we can maybe go back to that graphic again, if you don't mind. But right at the end of Joel, there is a promise that God's presence that was once the temple would be amongst these people. And it's pointing to the Holy Spirit. That actually you and I are now temples of the Holy Spirit. And it speaks of a river flowing from that temple again. So the locusts came and wrecked everything. But from the temple, a river will flow and will restore everything that the locusts have taken. That's a scripture that comes out of Joel. It's quoted often in, in Pentecostal churches. Love, love to be quoted. The, year, the Lord will restore the years the locusts have stolen. or Something like that. <laughs> Eaten. Thank you. My wife's always here to correct me. And that's pointing to the outpouring of the Spirit. Because Jesus himself said, when you're filled with the Spirit, what will happen? Streams of living water will flow out of you. And in Revelation, we know that that, that stream that, that, that flows out of the temple will be for the healing of the nations. And so, yes, some nations will stand before God in judgment, but those nations and those people in those nations who surrender to, to Jesus, who accept the gospel, that he died in your place, was judged in your place for your sin they will experience the presence of God in a profound way. And right now we can get that through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That is incredible. So through the ministry of Jesus, both the requirements of judgment, that sin will be paid for. And friends, he's using you know, locusts as a metaphor, but I, 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 judgment by a holy God is far worse than a couple of locusts sweeping through your life. When Jesus talked about judgment, 
I mean, we, we reference it a little bit out of Jeremiah. It's, it's dark. And Jesus took the requirements for judgment against sin upon himself. But not just that, he also made provision, a supernatural, supernatural provision for us to walk free from the sin that he was judged for. He took upon himself the plagues, if we want to use locust language, the plagues of judgment for our sins. He took it upon himself on that cross. And then he promised Jesus that he would provide the gift of the Holy Spirit that Joel says is coming and we know has come. Acts chapter 2, just days after the ascension of Jesus, he kept his promise. He said to them, wait. And the Holy Spirit fell upon all flesh present there. It was incredible. You know, another interesting thing that I mentioned is the, is the, is the use of Joel language uh, when Jesus talks about his coming, but also when Jesus died on the cross, actually a little bit of what Joel describes. He talks about the, the skies darkening, you know, very apocalyptic language. That kind of happened as Jesus died. It's sort of a point pointed to the fact that this judgment that Joel is talking about actually took place on the cross because when Joel describes that judgment, it sounds a lot like what life was like for those couple of hours around Jesus on that cross. As even the centurion looked around and go, oh my goodness, what's going on? Surely he was the son of God. We're talking about tombs opening, like, you know, zombie, zombie apocalypse in many ways. It, it, was, it darkened skies, earthquakes. So for us, we're like, yes, that means judgment fell upon Jesus. Because it's descriptions of what the day would be like, but it fell on that day upon Jesus. And now we know that actually if in our lives, there's a bit of cloud cover, there's a bit of darkness, there's some persecution, there's some trials. The New Testament talks about that being God's refining of us, testing of our faith, purifying our faith. It is no longer judgment. Because some of us might think, oh, what's happening? You know, really difficult times we might go through. Maybe personal struggles. It might even be sickness. And if you're in Christ, the good news is that Jesus was judged. This is not judgment. If he allows that in his sovereign wisdom, and it's not always easy to explain, one thing I can tell you, I can be sure of, is that he's not judging you. This is not judgment. This is the Lord doing something in you and, and, and you can embrace that and the Spirit of God that's been given you is, is able to carry you through that. And so Jesus experienced that darkness as judgment on that cross so that when you have some darkness and some difficulties in your life, it's not the judgment. It's God refining you. And you can't count these trials, as Peter says, as pure joy because God is testing your faith. He's making you more valuable he's turning you into the image and likeness of jesus jesus who learned the bible says he learned obedience through suffering it's a mystery in that but we we can at least say it's not judgment we are we stand judgment free because we're in christ and that is the good news that comes to us us who are, are a couple of hundred years ahead of joel we have experienced that we have seen that and i love i want to end off by reading joel chapter 2 verse 32 it says this, and it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's, that's the promise. And maybe you're here today and you've never called on the name of the Lord. Maybe you, you're hearing about this judgment and you've put it away and you've thought, it's probably not me, it's maybe not even true. And actually the Holy Spirit has convicted you today, saying no. If you carry on living like this, you will face your Creator one day. The good news is that if you call on the name of the Lord, if you run into Him, the strong tower, you will be saved. Judgment will not fall upon you because you're saying, someone took it for me. Because one day when you stand in front of God, you're either going to have an invoice or a receipt. <laughs> you're either going to have an invoice saying payment is due because you reject Jesus' payment. And so he's like, okay, you're going to pay for your sin yourself. Or a receipt showing it is done. It is finished. It's been paid for. And Jesus is on offering that to you. And so I want to encourage you, if you are here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're listening online and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want to say to you, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It's such good news. And all you have to do is believe what Christ has done for you. You don't have to lift a finger. No works required. You don't have to wear the right garment. You just have to give your heart. Rend me your hearts, not your garment, is what the Lord is saying. Give your heart to Jesus. Surrender. Accept what He's done for you. You will be saved. And then the rest of us. I'd love for us just to spend, we've got about technically 15 minutes left on the clock. This promise of the Spirit. The New Testament tells us, yes, that when you become a Christian, you know, the Holy Spirit does a renewing work in you. You are born again. But there is an encouragement in the Scriptures too to continually be filled. Even as we see Acts chapter 2, you keep reading, you see there were moments where the same disciples were filled with the Spirit over and over again. Filled to be empowered for more mission, to, to stand firm in the face of persecution, to proclaim the gospel, to be on fire and passionate for Jesus. And I want to extend an invitation to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and to fall upon us afresh. And there's no distinction. Did you hear what was said in the, in the prophet Joel? Young men, old men, sons and daughters, even slaves. So in other words, in that society, whether you were rich or poor, old or young, male or female, the Spirit of God is for all. And so it's not just for a select few. And I, and I hope there's an appetite in you. Friends, if we're going to be a church that's going to see more people find and follow Jesus, we need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We need Him. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. We need Him to fill us. And some of us here are dry, and you feel like locusts have come in, and they've eaten you, and they've robbed you of all your fruit, and you feel like you've got nothing. And actually, the promise out of Joel is that He will restore what the locusts have eaten, and He wants to pour out His Spirit upon you afresh tonight. And He wants to fill you up, and restore you, and pick you up, and, and give you the strength to either endure or, or give you back what was taken but that you would walk out here assured that the Father loves you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It sheds the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. Maybe you've doubted that God loves you. Maybe you've looked at your circumstances and you thought, God is judging me, and I've told you, if you're in Christ, it's not that. But He wants to give you the Spirit so that you could endure if you must. So you could know that He loves you still. He has not abandoned you. And there's so much more that the Holy Spirit does. 
but we need to be open and ready to receive. So can I ask you to stand? Can I ask you to stand? It is now officially 15 minutes, okay, <laughs> before we, we end. And maybe I can ask Brian to, you know, that last song is pretty appropriate. Spirit, lead me upon the waters. And, and I, I want to I ask you to open your heart, to maybe open your hands as a physical posture, as a sign, if you want to be filled with the Spirit. Now, I understand, it might not be everyone, but the invitation is there. But let it, let it be genuine. If you're hungry for the Holy Spirit, we're not going to pray fancy prayers. We're just going to pray that ancient prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. One of the oldest prayers. You find it, actually, in, the, in Revelation, right at the end, the day of the Lord. That's, that's what, what, is, what is prayed. A simple prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. He comes by His Spirit. Because that's what Jesus said to his disciples. I won't leave you as orphans. I'm coming. And then what happened? The Holy Spirit was poured out. The presence of Jesus with everybody, through, on everybody, through his spirit. And he's here. He wants to overwhelm you. He wants to embrace you. He wants to fill you. He wants to equip you. So can we close our eyes? Just going to wait upon the Lord.